please turn with me to Romans chapter 3. Verse 27, 28. Uh, I want to thank everybody who helped out with Country Fair. It was uh, amazing. It was awesome. I, we had, uh, gosh, I think close to probably a couple thousand people came out, wandered through. It was, it was amazing. It was awesome. Even in spite of kind of crazy weather, uh, it was a wonderful opportunity. I, I saw that we had a bunch of international students with us as well. So that was uh, uh, one of the, the, our objectives is to reach out to our, our neighbors, our friends, folks who may not know Christ. Um, those of you who donated tents, I just got a little green sticky and I never ignore these. Uh, this says, mention that the tents, if you donated a tent, your tent is in the foyer, make sure that you pick that up uh, on the way out. Uh, and if you forget to, just call the church and we'll have those available this week. We've been studying the book of Romans and what we learned was uh, that in the beginning of Romans, Paul goes into great detail describing for us our problem. And our problem is that uh, we are condemned under sin. He goes into great detail, but he summarizes it here in Romans 3.23, where he says, all have sinned and all uh, literally are continuously falling short of the glory of God. Another way to describe the righteousness of God or, or the standard of God is his glory. God is perfect in all that he is and all that he does, and we are not. We don't measure up, and we are continually demonstrating that we don't measure up. That's our problem. As a result, we are all under uh, the wrath of God. He must punish sin. In chapter 3, Paul then moves, after describing the problem, into the solution. He says this, However, being justified as a gift by his grace, through the redemption which is in Christ Jesus, whom God displayed publicly as a propitiation in his blood through faith. That is, uh, Jesus Christ satisfied the wrath of God against sin, and as a result, he set us free from the penalty of sin and even sin's power in our lives. He declared us righteous, or he placed us in right relationship with God, and he did it through faith. Last week, we spent the entire morning talking about what is faith. What does it mean to believe? We said that what faith is, is faith is becoming convinced or being persuaded that something is true, that it is reliable, that it is worthy of our trust. Having become convinced, we actually reach out in an act of receiving a gift. As Paul says, we are uh, justified as a gift, and that is literally something that costs the recipient nothing. Faith is then receiving. It is receiving an absolutely free gift from God. And I doubt that any of us would object to the fact that faith is necessary in having a relationship with God, but is faith sufficient? In other words, can it be just faith and faith alone, or is something more required? A couple of weeks ago, my son had his, his 10th birthday, and I wanted to buy him a bow for his birthday. And, uh, you know, I'm just, I just got myself a bow last year. I'm just learning about bows and bow hunting, that kind of thing. So I don't know a lot. So I, I emailed a friend of mine that knows a lot about bows. He bow hunts. His, his sons have hunted with him. And um, he emailed me back, told him, I want to get this bow for my son, something. Can you tell me what I should get? And he emailed me back and said, well, actually, uh, my boys have a bow that they've outgrown and I'd love to give it to you. I thought, wow, that's amazing. And I wrote back, can I pay you for it? <laughs> because, you know, I, I don't really feel that, it's a, it's a really nice bow. And I didn't really feel completely comfortable receiving such a nice gift for free. I felt like I needed to give him something. And he, he wrote back and said, no, I just want to give it to you. 
Okay, well, I, I took the bow, I, I brought it down to uh, Sullivan's Outfitters, I put a new string on it, new sights, everything, got a case for it, gave it to my son, and I actually have a video of him opening it up, and he just goes crazy. It's, it's, he's so excited to receive this gift. And, you know, it never crossed my son's mind to say, can I pay you for it, Dad? <laughs> you know, never on Christmas morning does he reach into his back pocket, wow, these are great gifts. What do I need to do? Where do I need to vacuum clean? Whatever, you know? It doesn't cross his mind. It's just a gift, and he inherently knows what you say when you received a gift is thank you until we outgrow that. And we become mature, and we think that we need to add something to the gifts that we're given. We become suspicious of every gift that's given. God reaches down in Christ, and he says, I want to give you something, and it's an absolutely free gift. I don't want you to pay me back. You can't pay me back. There's nothing that you have that I need. So cease trying and reach out and say thank you. That is why Jesus will say, if anyone wants to come into the kingdom of God, how do they need to come in? Just like a child. Say thank you. Paul states that principle. Romans chapter 3, verses 27 and 28. I want you to read with me. Where then is the boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law or principle? Of works? No. But by a law of faith. For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This is Paul's principle. He says, Justification in the sight of God requires faith and faith alone for every person without exception. That is, to be declared right, to be in right status with God, requires faith, and it only requires faith, for absolutely every person, without exception. There's nothing that we can do to add to faith. And in fact, when we do try to add to faith, we destroy the whole concept of faith. Because receiving a gift is just receiving, it's not giving something back. That's the very nature of faith. Notice that Paul says in this section, this is the law of faith. That's a play on words because he's going to contrast two ways to approach God. One is through what we can accomplish and the other is through what God has accomplished. And he says this is a new law or a new principle. It's the law of faith. The only way that people ever have been able to come to God is through the law of faith. And don't mess with that principle, God says. In chapter 3, verses 27 through 31, Paul describes the principle itself. He lays it out. And then in chapter 4, he proves it in the life of Abraham. He's going to spend, in fact, uh, an entire chapter talking about Abraham and Abraham's faith. And what he's trying to prove, uh, follow me here, is he's not trying to prove simply that it's faith alone, but why it must be faith alone. And if you add to faith, you destroy the whole concept of faith. He's going to spend the entire chapter proving this principle. Why Abraham? Well, uh, Abraham is considered the father of the Jewish nation. It says in Isaiah 51, verse 2, Look to Abraham, your father, and to Sarah who gave birth to you in pain. When he was but one, that is one person, had no children, I called him, then I blessed him, and I multiplied him. Uh, Abraham is the father of the Jewish nation. All the Jews would look to Abraham and say, he's the root. We all come from him. Abraham had a son named Isaac. 
Isaac had a son named Jacob. Jacob had 12 sons. From the 12 sons came the 12 tribes of Israel. Every Jew would trace his way back to Abraham. And it was Abraham who was given the covenant. Remember, in this covenant, Abraham was promised blessing, blessing for all of his seed. But also through Abraham, God would set everything right. Abraham's the root, okay? It all comes back to Abraham. However, there's more to why Paul chose Abraham. During the intertestamental period, uh, Abraham became this paragon of virtue. What I mean is uh, between the end of the writing of Malachi, that was the last book written, and then John the Baptist showing up on the scene during this intertestamental period, uh, this concept of Abraham being personally virtuous and worthy of God giving him the covenant became very prevalent among Jews. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. It's from the book Jubilee. It said, Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. In the prayer of Manasseh, it says, Abraham did not sin against thee. Okay, so in Paul's day, the concept of Abraham being personally virtuous, personally worthy of God, giving him a covenant, declaring him righteous, putting him in the right relationship, that was the prevalent idea. Is that an accurate assessment of Abraham and his life? Uh, Paul gives you a little bit different picture. Read with me in chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh, has found? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works... His wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. In other words, this is Paul's conclusion. Abraham was justified by faith alone apart from his works. Or in other words, Paul says, Abraham's works contributed nothing to him being put in right status or right relationship with God. And if Abraham couldn't get there through his works then you certainly can't get there through your works. If the path through which Abraham got right with God was through faith, then that's going to be the same path for you. It's going to be faith, and it's going to be faith alone. And he's going to spend the entire chapter proving why it has to be by faith alone. Paul's going to give us uh, three reasons. First, adding works steals God's glory. Second, adding ritual divides God's family. And third, adding law nullifies faith in God's promise. Okay, so adding works steals God's glory. Adding ritual divides God's family. And then third, adding law nullifies faith in God's promise. Read with me again chapter 4 and verse 2. It says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What is the natural human tendency? Our natural human tendency is, We want to take the credit. That's the reason Satan fell. It was pride. And then he tempted Adam and Eve with pride. You don't have to be like God, submissive to God. You can be God. It's pride. We want to be in charge of our lives. We want to be in control. We want to uh, be worthy. When it comes to salvation, we want to say we have a part. 
Imagine for a moment that God did 99% of the work to bring us back to him, but we contributed 1%. What would we do? We would boast in the 1%. I would say, well, wow, I've got actually 1.5%. I don't know about you, Matt when I think you just have one. And I would elevate myself. And we would begin to compare ourselves. If it was even just one single percent, we would want to take credit for that. Because that is human nature. We want to take the credit. And so God justified Abraham in such a way that Abraham could not possibly take any of the credit and steal the glory from God. Mark your place here in Romans 4 and turn back with me to Genesis chapter 15. I'll put this in a little historical context for you here. You know, I like the the history and the geography. Uh, Abraham was born and raised Uh, here in Ur of the Chaldeans. Put that in a modern context for you. Abraham was born and raised in Iraq. Modern day Iraq. Uh, He was uh, born into a pagan family. He worshipped false gods. His family worshipped false gods. There was nothing meritorious about Abraham personally. He did not know the Lord. The Lord revealed himself, according to Peter's sermon in Acts chapter 7, the Lord revealed himself first to Abraham when he was here in Ur of the Chaldeans and said, get up, leave your family. And Abraham sort of obeyed. He got up and left, but he took his family with him. And he got all the way up to uh, Haran. Uh, In Haran, his father died. And according to Genesis 12, God appeared to him there and he made Abraham a promise. This is not yet the Abrahamic covenant, it's a promise. And he says, again, uh, leave your family. And go to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great people. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. And in you, all the families of the earth will be blessed, which was a seed form of the promise that God would set all the world right through Abraham. He says, Abraham, follow me. Believe in me. And again, Abraham obeyed, sort of, not perfectly. He took Lot with him, which created problems for him later. He went down into the promised land. He stopped in Shechem. And when he was at Shechem... That's where God made a covenant with him. Literally, uh, God cut a covenant with him. To ratify a covenant in Hebrew means to cut, and it's uh, referencing the the cutting of the animals and the laying of them apart. That's in Genesis chapter 15. Let's read in verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abraham, or Abram, in a vision, saying, Do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me, since I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus, that is a slave? Abram said, Since you have given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body. He shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he said, now look toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to count them. And he said to him, so shall your descendants be. Then Abram believed in the Lord and he reckoned it or credited it to him as righteousness. This is the first place in the Bible that it talks about faith. God made a promise to Abraham. So shall your descendants be. One will come forth from your own body. And he will be your heir. Abraham is now uh, 85 years old. 
And it says, he believed God. He counted God trustworthy. And he received the gift. And the gift was that God credited to him as righteousness. Remember last week we talked about this. It's an accounting term in Greek. It means if you look on your balance sheet and you have all kinds of of debt that is your sin. When God credits righteousness to you, he removes the debt. And he places the righteousness of Christ to your account. Now Abraham hadn't seen Christ yet. Christ hadn't died for him yet. But it was by faith in God. God was the object of his faith. And the object of his faith was trustworthy. God knew his plan that one day he would remove that debt in Christ, make a full and final payment, a sacrifice. And so he was able, even though the sacrifice was yet future, to credit faith as righteousness. Abraham's debt is removed and he's put into right status with God forever. Forever. Now God proves to him that the promise will come true or demonstrates it and demonstrates that Abraham has righteousness by cutting or ratifying the covenant. Look with me in verse 9. It says, so God said to Abraham, or actually verse 8, Abraham said, O Lord God, how will I know that I will possess this land? He said to him, bring me a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat, a three-year-old ram and a turtle dove and a, and a young pigeon. Then he brought all these to him and he cut them in two and laid each half opposite the other, but he did not cut the birds. So in other words, he took each of the animals and he split them right down the spine. I thought this would be a great visual at some point, but we have new carpet. So uh, there you've got the animals laying out. They're just split wide open, half on one side, half on the other, except the birds. They're too small. He just kills them and he lays them off on one side. And notice what transpires here. It says, the birds of prey came down upon the carcasses, and Abram drove them away. Now when the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell upon Abram. And behold, terror and great darkness fell upon him. God said to Abram, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a land that is not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed 400 years. That was their slavery in Egypt. But I will also judge the nation whom they will serve, and afterward they will come out with many possessions. As for you, you will go down to your fathers in peace. You will be buried at a good age. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here, for the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. It came about when the sun had set that it was very dark, and behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed between these pieces. What normally happens when a covenant is ratified is that the partners of the covenant hold hands, and they walk between the animals that have been split in two. And both of the partners, as they're holding hands and walking, are reciting the terms of the covenant. And basically what they're saying is this, may it be done to me as was done to the animals if I break the terms of this covenant. Or may this covenant endure until these animals could actually be be joined together once again. And so they walk together and they recite the terms of the covenant together. The promises that they're making to one another, the stipulations and so forth. Now, As this covenant is ratified, who's walking between the pieces? Who's walking between the pieces? Just God. Where's Abram? He's sacked out over here, right? He's he's watching as if in a dream or in a vision. And God comes through in a theophany. It's a flaming torch. It's a representation of his glory. But only God passes through the animals. Only God. While Abraham watches... 
God make a unilateral promise to him, Abraham, I will do this. The fulfillment of this covenant depends upon me. It depends upon my faithfulness. Abraham can't even wake himself up and get off the ground. To demonstrate that God declares him righteous and will fulfill the promise based upon his own strength and his own faithfulness. Now turn back with me to Romans chapter 4 again. Verse 5. And notice how Paul states it. He says, But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is credited as righteousness. To the one who does not work, but believes. It's not faith and, it's faith alone. Let me issue a couple of caveats here. Okay. First statement is this. Good works have no place in justification in the sight of God. You enter into a right relationship with God simply because of the faithful work of Jesus Christ on your behalf. You believe and you say, thank you, God, for doing it all for me. Okay? It's not by works, just by faith. Free gift. However, good works can be good. <laughs> good works can be good. Uh, the Apostle Paul is not against good works. Consequently, I'm not against good works. I'm not saying good works are bad. Good works can be good. In fact, uh, as we're going to see when we get into Romans chapter 6 through 8, good works are a, a part of sanctification. They are a part of sanctification. But only the kind of good works that God accomplishes through you. Not the stuff that you do on your own to show how good you are. Okay? The only good works that mean anything to God are the ones for which he gets the credit. Whether it's in justification or sanctification, God gets the credit. I know you're all familiar with uh, these verses here, Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 10. Uh, We've at least memorized verses 8 and 9. We should probably add on verse 10, right? For by grace you've been saved through faith. That not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not as a result of works. Why? So that no one may boast. So that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. God prepared the good works, and he says, walk this way. By the power of my spirit, for my honor and for my glory. When God decided it was time to create the church, to build the church, he chose men that could not brag. One of them literally betrayed him to the Jewish and Roman authorities, and he was crucified. The other 11 all ran away and abandoned him. And then he gathered them together and said, I want you to start a new movement of my kingdom on earth. It's called the church. And none of these men could boast and brag because they had all run away in fear. And none of them were extremely highly educated, articulate, And certainly not brave. These are the ones that God chose to begin the church. It was said of them in Acts chapter 4 verse 13. Now as the Jewish leaders observed the confidence of Peter and John and understood that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed and they began to recognize them as having been with Jesus. And so the church and their work and all that they did, all of the credit 
went to God. What's unique about these men? Uh, Fishermen and tax collectors, farmers, at least one or two rebels, uneducated, untrained, and look at the boldness. Look Look at how they're speaking. Look at this message that they're delivering. Oh yeah, they were with Jesus. And all the credit goes to Jesus. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, Paul says this. For God who said light shall shine out of darkness, that is God who created something from nothing. He is the one who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. But we have this treasure in earthen vessels so that the surpassing greatness of the power will be of God and not from ourselves so that people will look at our lives and they'll say, wow, (laughs) that person couldn't do anything like that. There must be something supernatural about them. Paul actually goes on in this passage and then he begins to talk about all the suffering that they've gone through. And you know what? That is actually one of the primary reasons that God allows suffering in believers' lives so that people will watch us endure in a very different way and they'll say, there is something supernatural. Whether it is justification or whether it is the good works that flow from justification, all of the credit goes to God. And if 1% of the credit goes to us, we're stealing the glory from God. And God says, no. It must be by faith, and it must be by faith alone, so that God gets all of the credit. Second, adding ritual divides the family of God. Look with me in Romans chapter 4 and verse 9. Is this blessing then on the circumcised or on the uncircumcised? For we say... Faith was credited to Abraham as righteousness. How then was faith credited? While he was circumcised or uncircumcised? Not while circumcised, but while uncircumcised. And he received the sign of circumcision, a seal of the righteousness of the faith which he had while uncircumcised, so that he might be the father of all who believe without being circumcised, that righteousness might be credited to them. And the father of circumcision to those who are not only of the circumcision that, physic, that is physically seed of Abraham, but also who follow in the steps of the faith of our father Abraham, which he had while he was uncircumcised. Now, this is a reference to Genesis chapter 17, and it's an important observation to note that Genesis 17 comes after Genesis 15. Pretty profound, right? <laughs> Genesis 15 is where... The covenant is ratified, and God declares, you are righteous. You are in right status with me. Fourteen years later, he gets this sign of circumcision. Sign of circumcision is 24 years after Genesis 12, the promise. In other words, it's a sign of a reality that has existed for for decades. That is faith. It's merely a a symbol of of an inward reality, okay? And it's a symbol of his faith in that he believes that God will provide him a seed. And through that seed, he will bless not only his family and create a family, but he will bless all the nations. It is a sign of faith. It's nothing more. It's an external sign of faith. However, by Paul's day, circumcision had become an enormous issue. It was kind of the the one symbol that demonstrated uh, we're in and you are out, Because the Gentiles, they didn't like the concept of circumcision. They were not circumcised. And so it was a symbol. We believe and God has given the promises to us and we are the recipients of the promise. And if you're with us, you're in. And if you're not with us, you're out. 
And it was a dividing line. It was separating people. So when Christ rose from the dead and the gospel began to be preached, the first people who believed were were Jews. They were Jews. And they did. They believed that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, that he was Messiah, that he had died, that he had been raised from the dead. They believed. But they believed you also had to be circumcised and perform other acts of the law if you wanted to be in. It wasn't enough to believe. So they had faith, but they believed it was faith plus something else. Then the Apostle Paul, who himself was a rabbi, a highly trained theologian, he is going around and he's preaching, no, it's faith and faith only. That's it. And if you add to faith, you destroy faith. And he's getting in arguments with him and with these folks everywhere he goes. And he would preach faith alone. And they would come behind him and they'd say, no, it's faith and And they would divide every church. Every church is being divided. And there are huge arguments. And the church is brand new. It's just a baby. It's just been born. And it's about to die. Because of divisions within the church. And so they decide, you know, how does every community of believers solve their problems? (laughs) Let's make a committee. Right? So they have a committee. Uh, Acts chapter 15. It's Jerusalem Council or Jerusalem Committee. All right? Keep your place here again in Romans and turn to Acts 15 with me. Acts 15, verse 1. So some men came down from Judea and they began teaching the brethren, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. So yeah, you have faith in Jesus as Messiah, but you also must be circumcised. And if you're not, you are not saved. In other words, they have elevated the symbol, the ritual, above the reality of faith. Unless you are circumcised, you cannot be saved. And I imagine it was an incredibly heated argument. Notice verse 6. It says, The apostles and the elders came together to look into this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, Brethren, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles would hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God, who knows the heart, testified to them, giving them the same Holy Spirit just as he also did to us. And he made no distinction between us and them, cleansing their hearts by faith. Now, therefore, why do you put God to the test by placing upon the neck of the disciples a yoke, which neither our fathers nor we have been able to bear, that is the law. But we believe that we are saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in the same way as they also are. And that was the conclusion to the matter. That moment save the church. Now it's interesting. If you look a little further on, the apostles added on a few stipulations. With me, chapter 15, verse 19. This is James speaking. He says, Therefore it is my judgment that we do not trouble those who are turning to God from among the Gentiles, but that we write to them, that they abstain from things contaminated by idols and from fornication and from what is strangled and from blood. Wait a second. Is James now adding works back on? No, he's not. Okay, there are three stipulations that he gives here. All three are taken from the Levitical Code, chapter 17 and 18. Okay, all three relate to problems that had been created between Jews and Gentiles as they try to come together and have a meal. Remember, the communion was a whole meal. They would have a meal together, and at the end of the meal, they would break the bread, and they would take the cup, 
And there was, there was conflict, there was tension because you had people coming from two very different cultures and God is trying to create one body for themselves, but they can't accept one another. And so James gives three stipulations. He says, Gentiles, I want you to do these three things so as not to create a barrier. Three things that relate to the Levitical code that are causing the Jews discomfort at the table. The three things are these. Abstain from things contaminated by idols. Uh, Gentiles would make a sacrifice in the temple. There would be some left over. They could make some money off of it, so they would take it to the marketplace, sell the remainder. Gentile Christians, once they believed, understood there are no such things as idols. So for many of them, most of them, they could go into the marketplace and buy the meat and eat the meat and didn't even bother them at all. Because there really is no such thing as an idol anyway, so who cares? Well, the Jews, that really bothered them. Because they've been raised with the Ten Commandments. Don't make any idol. And it was just, it was a barrier for fellowship. And then he says also uh, from fornication. He doesn't mean simply immorality. That would be obvious. What he's referring to was marriage within close blood relationships. That was prohibited in Leviticus chapter 17 and 18. For Gentiles, culturally, it was not a problem. But for Jews, it was a problem. And so James says, I advise you, don't marry within close blood relationships or things strangled and from blood. That is, some of the animals that you might purchase in the marketplace and bring that meat and eat it at the Lord's Supper, maybe they weren't drained of their blood. Well, there's a specific prohibition. Don't eat the things that have blood in them. So James gives three prohibitions that are designed to do one thing, create fellowship. Create fellowship. Create unity. Turn back with me to Romans chapter 3. Verse 29, it says, Or is God the God of the Jews only? Is he not the God of the Gentiles also? Yes, he is God of the Gentiles also, since indeed God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. That is, God is one that is a cry of monotheistic Judaism for all centuries. Deuteronomy chapter 6, God is one. And because God is one, God is trying to create one people. And sometimes we become so caught up in our own cultural practices of our Christianity that we elevate our rituals, our practices above the reality itself. And the result is the people of God are separated. But the fact is you and I can have fellowship with one another if we each believe that Jesus Christ is our Savior. We've trusted in him and him alone for forgiveness of sins and eternal life. We are one, regardless of our race, regardless of the way that we dress, regardless of whether uh, you like praise songs and raising your hands and I like hymns, whether you uh, have piercings and tattoos and I don't. No matter what the external differences are, they are irrelevant. There is one place in which people with differences can come together and be one. It should be the church. God has designed the church to be the reflection of the Trinity itself, right? Father, Son, and Spirit, co-equals. As he says in John chapter 17, I pray, Father, that they would be one like we are one, that we would be a reflection of the very nature of God. What divides the church almost always? Why do churches split? Over external things, not the reality, not the fundamentals of our faith in Christ. So, Paul says it must be by faith and faith alone. Otherwise, the church, the body of Christ, is divided. Third, adding law nullifies faith in God's promise. Read with me chapter 4, verse 13. 
For the promise to Abraham or to his descendants that he would be heir of the world was not through the law, which came hundreds of years after the covenant, but through the righteousness of faith. For if those who are of the law are heirs, faith is made void and the promise is nullified. For the law brings about wrath, but where there is no law, there neither is there violation. Verse 14, faith is made void, the promise is nullified. That is, faith is of no effect. This is what I think Paul means by it. Imagine that I offered to give you my van. Two conditions. The first is, you say yes. The first is you say, yeah, I want your van. Thank you. And you reach out and accept the keys. Second condition, you must obey the laws of the minivan. Okay, because this van, this is a, it's a sweet ride. And this thing, it needs to be driven. So you have to drive my minivan eight hours a day because it needs to be on the road. Okay, and you can never run out of gas and you can never speed and you can never get a ticket And you must always change the oil exactly at 3,000 miles. And you can never give my van back. And you can never doubt that my van is the sweetest ride on the road. You must first accept my van as a free gift, but then obey the laws of the van, right? Will I ever give my van away? No, because no one can keep condition number two, which means condition number one is irrelevant. There's no point in condition number one if condition number two is added to it. That's what Paul means. Faith is nullified. The promise is made void. Here's the problem, the greatest problem with adding works to faith. How many works are necessary? What kind of works? What quality of works? How many works? Now, I want to attempt to step on every religious toe here this morning, okay? This is a problem for Roman Catholics And for Protestants, Roman Catholics add works on the front end of salvation. According to the Council of Trent, justification is by faith and by works. It's unmistakable. It's clearly stated. If you want to have a relationship with God, you enter into it and you maintain it. And you ultimately receive it by faith and by works. Protestants add works on the back end. You get in the front door free. But then you better do some good stuff. If you're Calvinist, you better do some good stuff or you prove you never believed in the first place. If you're Arminian, you better do good stuff or you're going to lose what you had in the first place. So you will never know if you've done enough. An honest Calvinist and an honest Arminian will always be insecure in their salvation. Calvinist will never know until the day he died, did I do enough good works, the right quality of good works, and did I persevere in good works until I took my last breath? I hope I'm saved. Okay? The Arminian is going to wonder the same thing. Did I stumble and fall and do something for which God said I rescind the offer? Freely? So justification is like walking out of a snowstorm into a nice warm cabin. You walk in through faith. You open the door. You step in. There's a warm fire inside. You close the door. And when the door is closed, you are sealed until the day of redemption. That's it. That's it. And you are secure because God is faithful. And I promise you, you will not be faithful from time to time. Should you be faithful always? Yes. Will you? No. 
So you walk in, the door is closed by God, sealed until the day of redemption, and you're enjoying that warm fire of justification and it's bringing you a sense of assurance. And then from time to time, you step over to the window and you open it up and you sit by the cold. And you bring the cold in and the cold affects other people around you. Are you justified in the sight of God? Absolutely, without question. Because God is faithful. And to get to my in-law's house, it is almost nearly 500 miles, almost exactly 500 miles, which means I have to fill up once on the way. I fill up before we go. I got I one, more, one more stop. So imagine that on my route to Broken Arrow, Oklahoma, I decide, you know, I, I'm tired of stopping all the time. I'm going to extend the, the tank of gas by adding a gallon of water. So we get partway there and I just pull over real quick. I pour the water and what's going to happen? I'm not going to arrive at the destination. Well, I'll just put in half a gallon of water. How about that? Or just a quarter gallon of water. No, if I add any water to my tank, I will not arrive at the destination because gas and water don't mix in a combustion engine. Faith and works do not mix for justification. You are declared right in the sight of God by faith by faith alone. And that's what creates security and assurance for you. Justified by faith, by faith alone. To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, faith is credited as righteousness. Two application points for you. First is this. Uh, Christians, in what do you boast? Who gets the credit for your life? Who gets the credit? This is in Jeremiah, let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and he knows me. That's what's important about us and about our lives. Second, for those of you who have yet to believe, uh, I remember when I was learning how to share my faith the first time, somebody uh, showed me these questions called the Kennedy questions. D. James Kennedy made them up. One of them is this, imagine that you're standing before God and he says to you, why should I let you in? How would you answer? How would you answer? You know, most people say, well, I think that my good outweighs my bad. I think that I've somehow outweighed the debt of my bad with my good. God says, no, that's not what's relevant to me. What I want to know is, did you believe? Because Jesus paid it all. When he died on the cross, he paid the entire debt of your sin. So that the debt could be removed, you could be put in right relationship with me, and you could have confidence that you have eternal life, life that lasts forever with me, and it's a gift. Will you simply receive it? If you have never received that gift, let me encourage you this morning, right where you're sitting, say, God, I accept. Thank you. I don't come with any boast of my own. I don't come because I'm worthy to be here. I don't come offering you what I've done or what I hope to do in the future. I come and say, God, thank you. I accept the gift of Christ. If you've never done that, As we close in prayer, let me encourage you just to go before God and accept that gift. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for Jesus Christ. I thank you that he has, in fact, paid it all for us. And Father, that stirs up within each of us a sense of gratitude and thankfulness. I pray that you would remove from us the sense that we need to add to that, that we need to be worthy of it, to earn it, because we cannot. That is, on the one hand, extremely humbling, but, Father, it's also so freeing. We are secure in Christ because he was faithful. We know that we have life with you. It's in Christ's precious and powerful name we pray. Amen.
God bless you. Have a great day.